0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 11th of December. I'm Cyber Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. It will be tougher for foreign students to get a visa to study in Australia as the federal government tries to curb the number of migrants arriving in the country. However, workers whose skills are in demand will be fast tracked under a new migration strategy that's being released today. I spoke with the Home Affairs Minister a short time ago. Claire O'Neill, a year ago, the government was forecasting that net migration to Australia would be 250,000 this year. It's actually half a million to September. So, what is the number that the government wants now?
1: Sabra, the migration strategy that the government is releasing today has a primary goal of reducing our migration numbers back to normal. And it's really important that we do that as quickly as possible because we can only run this successful migration program for our country when we've got widespread community support. And we won't have that if the numbers remain at these unsustainable levels. So So we are looking to return that program back to its normal size by next year, and that is being made possible by a bunch of really bold and ambitious things that the government is doing to fix the broken system we inherited.
0: So what's the number you'd like to see?
1: The normal migration rate for our country is about 250,000 people a year and that is what the number will return to next year.
0: The biggest changes will be to student visas. More than half of them at the moment are becoming permanent residents but they're also filling low-skilled jobs. Under these changes there'll be tougher English language requirements and checks to make sure they're actually studying. So how many fewer students will come in?
1: Well it will be hundreds of thousands over the period of time that the budget looks out to over the four-year period. Uh, and Sabra, this is very important. We're not just looking at students. The overall mix of our migration program at the moment is not delivering for the country. And by that, I mean, it's really hard to get those high skilled workers that we desperately need here, but we've made it much too easy for people to use side door and back door entries into our workforce. And the primary way that is happening at the moment is through international education. Now, we need to fix that immediately. And the way that we're doing that is making sure that we are lifting standards for international students and ensuring that they are actually here to study and not to work. This is critical to restoring integrity and trust in the system.
0: And how many ghost colleges do you think will shut up shop as a result?
1: I don't have a number for you, but your reference to ghost colleges is absolutely accurate. So when we look at the worst and the worst of integrity and exploitation issues in the system, it does centre around what we have seen grow rife under the former government, which is colleges set up which are really visa factories for international students to come in ostensibly to study but who are actually here to work. And this is really bad for the country because those students should be having a good experience here, should be getting a proper education. Instead, we know they're gathering in low paid professions, are highly vulnerable to exploitation, and have no possible pathway to permanency in our country. It's not good for them, not good for Australia, and that's why we're trying to shut that. Uh, funnel off for of the country.
0: You've alluded to this already. The government wants to attract high-skilled workers through a new skilled specialist pathway and fast-track their applications in just seven days. Is that really going to be possible?
1: Oh, absolutely, Sabra. I mean, anything is possible if you've got the passion and energy to fix this system. That Minister Andrew Giles and I have on this high-skill end. Like, think about how wild this is. We want, you know, scientists and doctors and brilliant people, cybersecurity specialists to come here. They will help lift the productivity of everyone around them. They will help grow businesses and create jobs. Today, it's virtually impossible to get those people into the country. So what we're doing with this new strategy for the country is opening up at that high-skill end, And at the other end of the labour market where we're seeing all that um, exploitation of students, making sure that we're better protecting them and reducing those numbers. For some of the higher skilled people who try to come to our country, it can take up to a year for those people to get a visa to come here because they have to go through um, a special system that the immigration minister must personally sign off on. Now, that's just absolutely crazy when these are really highly skilled people we're going to set a seven-day service standard, median processing time. Because remember, Sava, with those really high-skilled people, we are competing with every other country in the world to get those people here. We're in a global race for talent and we're not going to win it unless we do basic things like give people fast answers on their applications.
0: There are some some industries right now that need low-paid workers. It's work that Australians are reluctant to do. It's not highly paid. Isn't that a reality that we just don't like admitting?
1: (laughs) I agree with you. Um, This is something that the migration strategy confronts head on for the first time. I think as Australians, we've always pretended that we don't have lower wage migrant labour in our country and you just look around and it's not true. There are whole industries that are surviving uh, because we have migrant workers coming to help us. Now, I just want to use aged care as an example here. We've got the first of the baby boomers entering aged care. We are going to need many more workers and it is absolutely the case that migrants are going to be a core part of that workforce. At the moment, there is no proper regulated pathway for those workers to come in and have their rights protected and have a good experience of working in Australia. So we're running a number of pilots and experiments to see how we can make that pathway better so we can care for our elderly and care for these workers who are going to be so important for us.
0: Regarding the recent High Court ruling, how many of the 148 people recently released from immigration detention are going to be the subject of an application by the Federal Government to the courts for a community safety order? In other words, how many people are you trying to get locked up again?
1: Sabra, that has been Australian law for just four days now. And the Immigration Minister, Andrew Giles, has already started the work on the applications, As to the numbers and the detail of that, I'm going to leave that to Minister Giles. He's going to give a detailed update to the public a little bit later this week.
0: Claire O'Neill, thanks for joining AM.
1: Thanks so much, Sabra.
0: And Claire O'Neill is the Home Affairs Minister. Queensland's Labor government is in the process of renovating the party and the leadership following the surprise resignation of Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. She's spent almost nine years in the top job, but speculation about her leadership has been mounting as her popularity fell. With opinion polls showing the LNP is on track to win next October's state election, it will be up to a new leader to secure a fourth term for Labor. Nick Grimm prepared this report.
1: When I led this party from an opposition of just seven members, I said that the first election would be like climbing Mount Everest.
2: It was a mountain Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk would conquer again and again, with three election wins making her Australia's longest-serving female premier.
0: I don't believe anyone who comes
1: after me will know how humbling it is.
2: For months she's been staring down critics, vowing to fight on, despite being dogged by youth crime problems, a housing crisis and her own falling popularity. Her supporters say what can never be taken away is her leadership during the COVID pandemic. Cresta Richardson is the president of the Queensland Teachers Union.
1: You know, what great leadership by the Premier in that time. You know, not everybody was happy all the time, but... You know, what What a time to be Premier and a leader in the country and the world.
0: And I think at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge the Premier's role in COVID. I mean, Queensland did fare better than many of the other states.
2: But Dr Maria Bolton, President of the Queensland AMA, argues Anastasia Palaszczuk's successor will inherit fresh problems.
0: Most definitely. There's a lot of work to be done. And that's why it's so important that whoever is in power and the election commitments start into next year that those that are wanting to be in power really consider how to improve our healthcare system because at the moment it's
2: not in good shape. And with polling showing the Liberal National Party ahead, one pundit believes Labor needs new blood if it's to have any chance of winning at next year's election. Associate Professor Paul Williams is from Griffith University.
3: I suspect very
0: strongly that we've seen some factional chieftains tap the Premier on the shoulder, particularly those from the left, to say, you know, it's time to move on, Premier.
2: Well, what would be the thinking inside the party, do you think? Well, there is uh, some opinion poll evidence to suggest, and I dare say the party has done its own
0: internal polling, to suggest that Labour's vote has stabilised. However, the fact that the, the Premier has a net approval rating of negative 17 or thereabouts, and while Chris Pooley, as the opposition leader, has a positive approval rating, suggests that the Premier is the bigger problem than the party itself, the government itself. So the factional heads inside the parliament and the trade union leaders outside the parliament have probably come to the conclusion that Anastasia Pelosi cannot lead the party to victory. And while a change of leader is no guarantee for success, a new leader will at least give them a fighting chance.
2: A Labor caucus vote on a new premier is scheduled for Friday, with Deputy Premier Stephen Miles receiving endorsement from his outgoing leader, and Health Minister Shannon Fentiman also considered a frontrunner.
0: Nick Grimm reporting there. Homeowners aren't the only ones being hit by high interest rates. They're also hurting the federal budget too, pushing up the government's borrowing costs by an extra $80 billion during the next decade. The federal treasurer, Jim Chalmers, will unveil the mid-year fiscal and economic outlook known as MAIFO on Wednesday. He's been backing away from predictions that he'll deliver a budget surplus. For more on this, I spoke earlier with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, it sounds like the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, won't be declaring another surplus when he delivers the mid-year budget update on Wednesday.
4: Well, Sarah, yes, sounds like it. Uh, That ballooning cost of servicing the debt bill is a major weight on the budget, an $80 billion blowout in the projected interest bill over the next 10 years. So like regular borrowers worried about their mortgage, Jim Chalmers is trying to pay off the government's credit card just a bit faster. So the official line from Dr Chalmers' office is, that Treasury is not forecasting a surplus for the current year, but I'm told Treasury doesn't use that sort of language where a surplus would be ruled out because Treasury is always incredibly conservative. Despite all the tax revenue coming in from commodities exports, they'd want to avoid forecasting a surplus and then not achieving it, so under-promising and over-delivering. But you only have to look at the flurry of policy announcements in the past week, such as the overhauling of the NDI to see that additional costs could well show up and reverse the rosy surplus forecast back towards deficit territory.
0: As you point out, Dr Chalmers has been very careful not to talk about any bub- budget surplus despite all the tax revenue flowing in. Why is he being so cautious?
4: Well, it is a a double-edged sword. Treasury coffers might be filling up with all that tax revenue and the federal government then can claim credit for strong and conservative economic management. But at the same time, households doing it tough from cost of living pressures and 13 interest rate rises since May last year are, of course, asking the question, where's our cost of living relief if the budget's so strong? Dr Chalmers can't do major hand because of the risk of stoking inflation and he's been consistently warning that any relief would be limited and targeted to households in the most distress. Still there is a a drip feed of good news. Today's one is about gross debt built up during the pandemic expected to fall down from more than a trillion dollars forecast for 2023-24 to $909 billion so $147 billion lower. This is by paying down the debt a lot faster, building up the buffers in the budget for the next crisis, saving billions of dollars in interest payments. So halfway through the Albanese government's term, underscoring a key theme we've been hearing since the election, responsible and conservative economic management, and expect to hear a lot more on that in the lead up to Wednesday's MyEVO announcement.
0: Peter Ryan. Qatar is warning the window to achieve a new ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas is narrowing as fighting intensifies in southern parts of Gaza. Israeli tanks are now inside the biggest city in the area, and Palestinians who fled from the north to the south of Gaza have nowhere else to go. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Alison, have negotiations to release Israeli hostages broken down?
5: Good morning, Sabra. There is still a lot of work happening behind the scenes, but it does seem to have somewhat stalled right now, as evidenced by these comments from the Qatari Prime Minister in the last few hours. Qatar, of course, is a keen mediator in the hostage-release negotiations, including brokering that week-long ceasefire late last month that saw a small number of Israeli hostages exchanged for Palestinians that were being held in, in Israeli prisons. Uh, and Qatar's Says that the window is narrowing for another one of those deals. And that's because we're seeing this intensified fighting across so many parts of Gaza, including now in the southern areas. Uh, people in the south's main city, Khan Yunus, are reporting that Israeli tanks are now in the heart of the city and that heavy Israeli bombardment is happening nearby. And the Gaza Ministry of Health says that 18,000 Palestinians have now been killed since the start Start of this war. So that area in the south is where hundreds of thousands of people have already fled to from the north and international aid organisations say the enclave's 2.3 million people have literally been left with nowhere to be safe. Alison, during
0: the weekend, the United States vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. How is it explaining that decision?
5: Uh, the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has gone on American media in the last few hours saying that a ceasefire would effectively perpetuate the problem of Hamas and allow Hamas to regroup and plan and or carry out another attack on Israel. So that's how he is defending that position. But he's also spoken about the State Department's decision to push through the sale of 13,000 rounds of tank ammunition by bypassing congressional review, which is generally what's required for foreign arms sales. So uh, Anthony Blinken says this is an emergency measure. Uh, Here's what the Secretary of State said a short time ago.
2: Israel is in uh, combat right now with Hamas, a group that viciously attacked it on October 7th. That has said that it Given the opportunity, it will repeat October 7th again and again and again that continues to launch rockets against Israeli civilians. Uh, And we want to make sure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself against Hamas.
5: In Sabra, on the use of that weaponry, Antony Blinken says it's imperative that Israel respects international humanitarian law. Many aid and rights groups argue that isn't happening inside Gaza, although Israel says it is.
0: Correspondent Alison Horn there in Jerusalem. A row between the Federal Government and Northern Territory Traditional Owners, which has kept one of Kakadu National Park's top tourist attractions closed for four years, reaches the High Court this week. The Traditional Owners of Gunlom Falls and the Territory Sacred Sites Body are trying to prosecute the Commonwealth for building a walkway beside a sacred site, as Jane Barden reports.
3: With its crystal waterfalls cascading over the escarpment from a series of natural swimming holes, Gunlum Falls is one of Kakadu's biggest tourist carts. senior Wootbaba traditional owner Joshua Hunter.
6: It's a special place, not only ourselves, I like to spend time there, but visitors from around the world and um, from around NT, they love going camping out at Gunlum
3: traditional owner Joe Markham.
6: That site's a significant men's site to the Darwin people. We've um, been taught to protect those sites by our elders and part um, of the reason that we had Kakadu in the first place was to keep those sites protected.
3: The federal government, which jointly manages Kakadu with traditional owners, has apologised for building a walkway at the Gunlom Falls too close to a men's initiation site but it doesn't think it should be prosecuted for it by the NT's Sacred sites watchdog, and last year it successfully argued that it was immune under territory laws.
6: Saying sorry and you're not guilty is, a, is an empty apology.
3: Joshua Hunter again.
6: We understand the, you know, the system and being immune to prosecution. You know, if we can make it as simple as possible, we are the owners, they are the tenants, they did something wrong. And every other agreement, you know, when the tenants break something, do something that's out of control. There's punishment for those type of things and us as homeowners owners is that exactly what we want.
3: Traditional owners aren't the NT sacred Sites watchdog the Aboriginal Area's Protection Authority will argue in the High Court this week that the Commonwealth shouldn't be above NT law. The watchdog CEO, Ben Scambry, says traditional owners across the country are watching keenly. The
2: Commonwealth is moving towards strengthening national protection for Aboriginal cultural heritage and in this case they're arguing that they're not accountable for the protection of those places. So I think it is of national importance, this case.
3: In a statement, Parks Australia, which helps to manage Kakadu, says it takes the protection of sacred sites seriously... But the case provides an opportunity for the constitutional issues raised by the prosecution to be heard. Kakadu tourism operators, including Rob Woods, want it resolved.
2: I'd like to see both parties you know, have a good hard
6: look at themselves and actually think about the good faith element of, of the dealing.
3: Traditional owner Joshua Hunter says he'd prefer a negotiated outcome to court action.
6: We um, plan on opening Gunlam only if the federal government come to the table with the right frame of mind if they come to the table the right way, then we'll we'll open gunlam as soon as possible.
0: Kakadu traditional owner Joshua Hunter speaking with Jane Barden. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. When the World Health Organization demanded China pass over detailed information on an outbreak of respiratory illnesses last month, there was an uncomfortable sense of deja vu. It's clear now it's a winter surge in illness rather than a new pathogen. But are we really prepared for the next pandemic? Today, Professor of Global Biosecurity, Ryan McIntyre, whether we are and what it might look like. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.